let's start by praying. Dear Father, you, you are our defender. You are our God. You are our strength. You are the mighty king of the universe. And Father, as we read your word today, help us to come under it. Help us to be warned by it. Help us to be strengthened and comforted by it. Lord God, help us believe it, that we may honor you, that we may not walk in defeat, but that we may live in the victory that Jesus has given to us so freely. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Bless us this morning as we open it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Always love the music. Thanks, Gavin. Particularly like the talking about missionaries being martyred. Um, <laughs> got me praying. Uh, I need to be more careful, too, about my um, titles here. Annie was reading out to me what the church email said on, um, on was it Thursday or Friday? Friday night. Uh, and she goes, Simon Pyatt, your adversary. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, anyway. <laughs> What a wonderful passage we can come to. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. This morning I want to talk about something that's been on my heart for a while. I've been thinking about it a lot. And that is the subject of who our real enemy is. Who our real enemy is. In this subject, it's very easy to overemphasize the enemy. And we see that around us as people speak as though somehow... Satan was God's opposition in some way, or I should say he is his opposition, but he, he in no way competes with God. He cannot compete with God. We see this also in books that elevate the Christian to the point that, oh, poor God, what will he do without us? <laughs> My word, no. <laughs> we can overemphasize him. But I don't think that's our problem I don't think that's our problem amongst us. There may be some who may think that way here. And, and this passage will clear that up for you. You know, our problem is that for all intents and purposes, we can live our daily life as though he doesn't exist at all. We can live our daily life as though he doesn't uh, exist at all and we're not even in the battle. <laughs> I trust this passage is going to give us some clarity there. We often see the puppets, but we don't see the puppet master. We see the sin, but we don't see the tempter. We see the world system, but we don't see the ancient schema behind it pulling the strings. We see the persecution, but we don't see the lion that's there seeking to devour God's beloved saints. I pray that God is going to clear up our vision when we look at this passage this morning, that we will remember we're in a battle and that we're going to go forward in God's strength in the full assurance that we are his and nothing compares to him. Let's look in verse 8 here, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 to 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this in two parts. Uh, the first part is we're going to look at our adversary, and then we're going to look at the exhortations this passage gives us in that light. Looking at our adversary to start with, we need to see that we have an actual adversary, a real adversary. We have an ancient adversary. We have an active adversary. And last of all, we have an aggressive adversary. Let's look first of all, at the fact that we have an actual adversary. Uh, in context, this is the last Paul, uh, last point that Peter's making in his letter. Um, this is the last charge, the last charge that he wants to ring in people's ears. And it's quite a charge. Look at how he starts it off there. Be sober-minded. 
be watchful. These are both sharp commands that, that we're going to look at a little bit later. But what he's charging them with to start with here is to defog their minds. To defog their minds and to open their eyes. There was real danger ahead. When Grudem says of this passage, just as a person walking down a dangerous road might be advised to be alert and careful, so Peter's readers are warned to be sober, be watchful. There is real danger ahead. There is no uh, conjunction between these, these commands and the adversary, but it's, the flow of meaning is absolutely there. When you, when you have a warning, you want to know what you're being warned about. We, sometimes driving in our car, I, someone that's very close to me gasps all of a sudden as we're driving along. We're going along and I hear, <gasps> like this, and, I, and I'm like, immediately, you know, there's a, is there a toddler on the road, you know, what, what's happened, is there a bull bouncing across the road, and who's coming after it, or, you know, is there a, is there a hole, what do I have to look out for? And then she'll say, she, so that gives you a, a hint. <laughs> and then she'll say, oh, I forgot to buy eggs. You know, and, and I'm just like, it takes me five minutes for my heart rate to drop down again. Because when there's a warning, you need to know what you're being warned about. And so this is what we're looking at here. Uh, be awake, be, be sober-minded, be awake. There is a real threat, and we see here immediately who the threat is. Your adversary, the devil. You notice here that there's no, there's no idea of seeking to prove that Satan is real. He is real. No sense that, that Peter is trying to prove that. It's just matter of fact. You have a real adversary, and that is the devil. If you say you believe in the Bible, you must believe Satan exists. If you say you are a Christian, you must believe that Satan exists. Why? Because Jesus mentions him 28 times. If you don't believe in Satan, you don't believe the words of Jesus. Very clear. You don't want to say that you don't agree with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus always portrayed him as real, rational, and emotional, a true person not just a force. You have an actual adversary. Are you awake to that? Are you awake? Secondly, you have an ancient adversary. The terms here used, your adversary, the devil, they take us back. They take us back to other thoughts that we've seen in Scripture very clearly. The word adversary here, it, it, it only speaks here in the New Testament, but it carries the meaning of an opponent an opponent in the legal sense, and it echoes another word that you have heard before, the word Satan, the adversary, one who opposes or is an enemy. Devil here means slanderer, slanderer or accuser. These are familiar words, aren't they? Because we've heard them from the very start. They go back to the very beginning of the scriptures that we have, the earliest pages, and they speak right through to the last chapters of the scriptures. God created a beautiful world, a perfect world. He created beautiful creatures, creatures who were experiencing fulfillment in life and joy in their relationship with their creator. And chapter 3 happens. Chapter 3 happens. Satan sees this beautiful state and he seeks to destroy it. Seeks to destroy it. And you'll notice that he does this by slandering God. Slandering God. Did God actually say? Did he really say it? Trying to draw doubt onto the word of God. In verse 4 he goes the whole hog and calls God a liar. You will not surely die. He lied to you. Verse uh, 5, he calls God's uh, goodness into question. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. God doesn't want you to have that good thing. He's stingy. He's petty. He doesn't want you to be like him. You see the opposition? You see the slander there? We see a very similar thing in another ancient book, the book of Job. 
It was taken from the, around the time of the patriarchs, the book of Job. And it shows us similar traits in chapter 1. Uh, we see a picture of Job as a truly godly man who loves God, who fears him, who seeks to obey him. And then we see God, for his own purposes, bringing that to Satan's attention. In verse 8 he said, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Now look at Satan's response to that in the next verse. I'll, I'll read it to you because I didn't give you time to look it up. <laughs> then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. It oozes with hate. Well, you think he really loves you? He only loves you for what you can give him. And if he didn't have that, you would mean nothing to him. Hateful. He would curse you to his face. There's hatred, there's opposition, and again, there's slander. Well, why? <laughs> why is it like this? Well, there are, there are two passages that you'll be familiar with from the Old Testament that have historically been considered to be speaking of Satan. To be speaking of Satan. They're speaking of earthly kings, so it's a little bit controversial and there's been a, a lot of discussion about them, one the king of Tyre and one the king of Babylon. Um, and some people say that it's just hyperbole. But it's huge hyperbole. It's exalted hyperbole if that's the case. Most evangelical scholars have concluded that this is talking about Satan, or at least they leave room for it. The puppet master, I love this term in Indonesian, mandalangi. It's the puppet master behind it. The one that is controlling, the one that is causing people to act the way they do. Um, and so in many cases, this is what we see, the one behind them. And in fact, when we see this, God is speaking to these men, but he's also seeing who's behind them, the one that's pulling the strings. And this is not unusual in scripture. You remember the snake? It was probably a real snake probably possessed by Satan. And then in chapter 3, the curse goes against who? Both the snake and Satan. The snake is cursed. It has to, has to crawl along the ground or move, slither right along, along the ground. Satan, we see that his head will be crushed. He will be destroyed. God sees the puppet master. When Peter gave his great advice to Jesus, remember that, Peter's great advice to his friend that he didn't want to lose? Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me. Yeah. He saw the puppet master. He saw the one who was behind those things. And, and I would say that these two passages are doing the same thing, seeing the puppet master behind these two kings. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, if you'd like to turn there. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. You've heard these before. It's actually a really good series of sermons given by Philip de Corsi at a, an impact conference a few years ago. If you want a more full teaching on, on our, our adversary, go to that. You'll love his outline because it's who the devil is, you, what the devil does he do, and all that kind of thing. Excellent sermon series. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will descend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. It's a very familiar passage to us, I'm sure. The first thing there you see is a name, a name given, the morning star, the eastern star. The King James Version translated this Lucifer. Lucifer, although it just means the morning star. This probably refers to the king rather than Satan, to say that because Jesus refers to himself as the bright morning star in Revelation 22:16. 16. 
Next we see God's judgment, God's judgment there against Satan, casting him down to the earth. And Jesus makes clear reference to this in Luke 10 verse 18 where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Cast down, very clearly speaking of this passage. The next we see is the why. This is the well-known I will statements. I will, I will, I will. He lifted up his heart and pride and he sought to compete with God. He sought to be glorified with the glory that only belongs to God and he was cast out, cast out. And this is probably what uh, Paul was referring to in 1 Peter 3, 6 and 7 when he speaks of the possibility of rushing to lay your hands on an elder and what happens if that person becomes puffed up he will face the same. He will face the same uh, judgment that came upon Satan for his uh, pride. Very clear there. Lastly, we see that he's cast down into the far reaches of the pit. Revelation nine eleven calls Satan the angel of the pit. The angel of the pit. So this is very clearly talking about him, and it's more than hyperbole. More than hyperbole. The second passage we need to look at is Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 17. And this is speaking of the king of Tyre and the puppet master, of course. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 17. I'll read and you can catch up. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Here we see Satan described as a guardian cherub, beautiful, blameless, beloved, serving in heaven. And yet we see, again, that his heart became proud. And here we see why. Because of his beauty. He became puffed up because of his beauty. And the penalty was, again, he was cast down. He was cast down. Again, we see here that there are parts of this passage that relate to the king of Tyre, but the language clearly goes beyond hyperbole and speaks of the puppet master. The one who formed this man, shaped him, and used him, and called the shots for him. Well, drawing those thoughts together, we can easily answer why Satan opposes God, slanders him, and wants to destroy the things that God loves. It comes down to nothing more petty or less petty than pride. Pride and envy. That's our ancient adversary. The next part of our passage in 1 Peter 5 uh, speaks of us having an active adversary, an active adversary. He is presently active. He gets around, you could say. The word translated prowls here, it's often translated as walks around, but prowls is very good when it speaks of a lion seeking prey. He prowls around. The word here is in the present tense. And in the Greek, the present tense is continuous. So what's it saying? He is right now presently active. Presently active. Presently seeking his prey. Now, why do I make a big deal of that? The reason I make a big deal of it is because there is one of the major um, uh, 
word. I'm only getting Indonesian. Pandangan. View. Sorry. Oh, wow. The Gavin's got me tripped now talking about missionaries. <coughs> One of the major views about end times believes that the millennium is now. That it's currently happening now. For those of you who follow uh, teaching on the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, know that the first thing that happens is that Satan is bound. Satan is bound. Let me read to you from uh, Revelation 21 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So clearly saying that if the millennium is now, then Satan is bound. Now, some would, some would say that it's not really Satan at work in the world at the moment, that it's actually his demons. Um, and that's what's meant by passages like 1 Peter 5. The problem with that is it's very clearly pointing to Satan, saying he is the one doing the prowling. He is the one who is continuously looking for victims. That's what he's doing. It could also be said, and has also been said, that he actually has limited freedom. So the whole uh, idea of binding him, shutting him in, and sealing him in the deepest pit actually just amounted to home detention with an ankle monitor. This is not the case. It's also said that from the pit he can command his demons, like, like some drug lord commanding his minions from prison. I don't think there's Wi-Fi in the pit. This is, this is not true. It is not true. It doesn't make sense of Revelation 20, and it really doesn't make sense of the biblical data, and I'm going to do a John MacArthur on you. You know what a John MacArthur is? He has this ability to tie 10 passages together within 30 seconds and it gives you the whole theological picture straight away. And I, I can't do it as fast as him, even though he's much older than me now. Um, but I'm going to try my best to do this. And this is all. These are passages from the scriptures speaking post-ascension. Post-ascension. And again, uh, this view that believes the millennium uh, started, they believe it started post-ascension, once Christ ascended. So these are some post-ascension passages that speak of Satan. In Acts 5, verse 3, Peter tells Ananias the reason he had lied to the Holy Spirit was that Satan had filled his heart. In Acts 26, verse 18, Paul speaks of his ministry as fulfilling the charge of Jesus that he would turn people from the power of Satan to the power of God. In Romans 16, verse 20, the promise is given that the God of peace would soon, as it hasn't quite happened yet, crush Satan under their feet. It wasn't talking end times. It was talking to the Roman church that, that needed the power of God to do that for them. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, the immoral man there was handed over to Satan for discipline. And 1 Corinthians 7.5, husbands and wives are told not to deprive one another so that Satan might not tempt them. And Tempt there is present tense. So it's talking about now. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us that the repentant sinner should be forgiven so that Satan might not take advantage of the situation. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us that Satan, present tense, disguises himself as an angel of light, something he currently does. Ephesians 4.27 tells us not to give any foothold to the devil. This is a present tense command. Over in chapter 6 of Ephesians, we see in verse 11 that the reason we put on the armor of God is that we may stand firm against the devil's schemes. And down in verse 18, that this same devil shoots fiery arrows. Shoots fiery arrows. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul speaks of being repeatedly hindered by Satan from visiting the Thessalonian church. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul speaks of handing over a pair of false teachers to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. In, in chapter 3, verse 7, he speaks of Satan setting snares for church leaders. 
And in chapter 5, verse 15, he says that some had turned aside to follow Satan. In 2 Timothy 2, 26, Paul speaks of false teachers as people trapped in Satan's snare, currently being forced to do his will. And James 4, 7 tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee. He will flee. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, we see that he is actively pursuing believers in order to destroy them. The New Testament portrays the devil as very much active, very much active, free to move, free to deceive, free to discredit the church, free to try and seek to cause us to doubt God, free to enslave false teachers, free to infect the nations with hatred for God and his church, free to set up opposing worldviews. Our adversary is dangerously active, and you need to be awake to this. You need to be awake to this. Well, the last aspect that we need to see about our adversary is that he is aggressive. He is aggressive. Satan is not playing games. He's not your friend. He's currently seeking to destroy people. Our passage pictures him as a lion stalking its next victim. That looks great on film. <laughs> but if you're standing out there and there's a lion there, You've got to see that picture. He's aggressive and he's seeking to devour Christians. Well, how's he trying to do this? We've seen a few already. He seeks to destroy your confidence in God's goodness. Your confidence in God at all. He wants you to doubt his existence. He wants you to doubt his goodness, his kindness, his grace. And when you face those doubts, you need to know who's behind them. We have doubts come up, but it really helps to know who's behind them. It's not your logic. It's the devil. Secondly, he will call into question the truth of God's word. We've seen that, right? Did God really say? These days we'd hear, well, surely he didn't mean that. <laughs> I'm not sure the scriptures are so clear on that. Exactly the same. Same person. Satan knows that if we doubt God's word, that's the ball game. It calls into nature God's very character to doubt his word. He will seek to make you doubt your salvation. Is your sin overwhelming me, you? <laughs> Mine sometimes does. That's Satan doing that. You know, in Revelation 12, 10, He's called the accuser of the brothers. He's doing that to you. He also seeks to make us doubt our salvation by believing things about the gospel that are not accurate. Have you ever wondered why Paul reacted so strongly to the Galatian believers, new believers? And they were thinking, well, they'd been taught by someone else who'd come along, that if they were just circumcised, that would be the icing on the cake of their salvation. And what does Paul say? That is not the gospel. That is another gospel. And he says, if anyone preaches that gospel, what? May he be eternally condemned. When you add anything to the gospel, that is a never-ending focus on self. How can I be saved? Well, there's got to be one more thing. <laughs> he saw the puppet master and he spoke accordingly. Next he will seek to draw you into sin. Well, we see that, obviously, in, in what he did with Christ, right? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, seeking to bring Christ, and obviously he was no match for Christ, in that he wants you to sin, he wants to tempt you, so that he can oppress you, so that he can enslave you, so that he can accuse you. He wants any Christian to blow their witness. And that's especially the case with Christian leaders. Why? Because it's, it publicly stains the name of Christ in his church. Hatred. Slander. He will tempt you to deny Christ. That's what the meaning of Satan sifting the apostles was. What did that sifting look like? It was persecution. 
persecution that came seeking to, to make them deny Christ. Do you feel it? Who's behind it? He will seek to have you believe false doctrine. False doctrine. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven three. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Anything in church life that crowds out Jesus, that robs him of his glory, that makes him less central, less beautiful, less necessary, that fogs up our glasses so that we can't see him, and distorts our view of him, is satanic. It's satanic. He will tempt you to preach a gospel that does not save. A gospel that does not save in Matthew 13, uh, 19. Remember the parable of the sower? The, the seed that was not understood. The preaching of the gospel that was not understood. What happened next? Satan comes and grabs it. He does not want people hearing the gospel. And he certainly, if you're going to preach the gospel, he's all right if it's not clear. He's all right if it's not clear. You know, I've seen churches in the area where we, we have been serving, where the church is still there, the building's there, the people gather every Sunday, they preach from the word of God, but the crucial truths of the gospel are missing. And it's fatal. It's fatal to the church. You know, I, I, I was doing doctoral studies in theology in Jakarta. There was a guy in my class, we were talking about something, and I mentioned the gospel, and he said, oh, what's the gospel? You're in a doctor of theology class. <laughs> he knew the word gospel. He'd heard it spoken of before. But in his reading, there'd been so much rubbish said about the gospel that it had fogged his mind. And Satan's entirely contempt for that gospel to be preached because it's a gospel that does not save. And I was blessed that I, I got to... It was funny, I think he wanted to debate the issue and all I did was preach the gospel to him. <laughs> That's what to do with the gospel, don't debate it. <laughs> Lastly here, he will tempt you to live a hollow, disobedient Christian life. He will tempt you to live a hollow, disobedient Christian life. We saw before that Satan repeatedly sought to hinder Paul's ministry. That's in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. We see in 2 Corinthians 12 that a messenger of Satan literally harassed Paul. Someone that was against the gospel and was harassing him to the point where Paul is a guy that I would look at and go, he's so brave, cries out, cries out to God, felt the pressure, was desperate. Satan doesn't want us serving God. He doesn't want us sacrificing for him. He doesn't want us living for him. And he certainly doesn't want us talking about Jesus Christ. And if you do these things, you will face attack. And the attacks keep coming. And sometimes you crawl up in a ball. And you live only for yourself. And if you have any comfort in that, the one giving you the comfort is not God. It's not God. The one saying, there, there, is the very one that was attacking you. Now, if you're like me, these things are not unfamiliar. None of them. <laughs> You've heard the roar. You've felt the bite. Well, let's see how we're to respond here to that. And there are five charges from verses 8 to 11. Some of them are explicit, some are implicit. And I put them in the form of five commands. I'm sorry, they're corny. Five commands, sober up, wake up, stand up, wise up, and look up. The first one here we see is sober up. This charge is for us to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. In a literal sense, this speaks of not being drunk. Not being drunk, but figuratively it was used throughout the New Testament and three times in this letter about not having your spiritual senses 
not having your spiritual senses dulled. One writer says, be sober forbids not only physical drunkenness, but also letting the mind wander into any other kind of mental intoxication or addiction which inhibits spiritual alertness or any laziness of mind which lulls Christians into sin through carelessness or by default. He, Peter, I'm still reading, knows how easily Christians can lose their spiritual concentration through mental intoxication with the things of the world. With the things of the world. Are you spiritually sober? This is speaking in, in the context of the fact that we're in a battle and we have a powerful enemy. Are you mentally prepared for this battle? If your priorities lie in the standards of the world, then you are not prepared for the battle. You're compromised at every turn when it comes to this fight. Your thinking isn't clear. Your action isn't decisive. Your rejection of temptation is half-hearted. Your grasp on the sword of the Spirit is loose. My friend, if you want to clear your thinking, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That'll blow away the fog. The next command here is that we wake up We've already talked about this a bit, so I've just got one paragraph. <laughs> the analytical Greek New Testament uh, describes this as being watchful, vigilant, alert. This is, this is not to say being scared and paranoid, not at all. But we must be vigilant to the tried and true methods that Satan has always used to attack God's people. We don't just look from the human perspective. We don't. We must look from God's perspective. We need to wake up. The next one here is that we stand up. Stand up. We resist him. Firm in our faith. Grammatically speaking, firm in our faith is the result of us resisting him. The result of us resisting him. We resist the devil by remaining firm in our faith. Remaining firm in our faith. He wants to shake your faith and to destroy your confidence in God. But you can resist. And you must resist. Resist here speaks of active, determined opposition. So, when he seeks to cast doubt on God's goodness to you, you stand up. And you remind yourself of how good God has been to you. How good he's been to you in salvation. How good he's been to you in your life. How kind he has been to you. You stand up and remind him of that and remind yourself of all the blessings he showered on you. When he tempts you, to remind, uh, tempts you to doubt God's promises, you have a wealth in the scriptures of God's fulfilled promises, hundreds of them. Remind yourself of those things. Stand up. When he tempts you to think that the prevailing winds of opinion in this world are true, you've got to stand firm on the truth that the creator knows what's best for the creation. He does. It's interesting. My whole Christian life, I've been told that I'm stupid for not believing evolution. <laughs> I'm guessing that's the case in, with you as well, the prevailing winds of teaching that, that go around. And every step of the way since the 80s, I've been told that it's based on facts. But ever since the 80s, what's happened to those facts? They've changed, but it's still called fact. I don't know. Maybe I need to get a new dictionary. I thought facts were things that were true and didn't change. What's really interesting right now is with all the evidence coming out of the, the um, study that's going into the cell, because Darwin didn't have a great microscope, um, is that the cell is so complex, incredibly complex. Things that didn't look that way to to Darwin, are now being seen by scientists as absolutely disproving evolution. Why? Because it's mathematically impossible that the changes needed could come about in the cell. It's amazing. Watch this space. Watch this space. God is, God is so much more trustworthy than the talking heads. When he accuses you about your sin, and he does and he will, agree with him. It's true. 
you've sinned. You've sinned. And then you stand up and you declare that Jesus Christ fully paid for every one of those sins when he died for you on the cross and there is no wrath left for you. You, you are beloved. You are beloved in him. He has no right to you. He has no hold on you. Jesus triumphed over him at the cross. When he seeks to suck you into sin, stand up. Stand up fully convinced that God has granted you the power to refuse temptation. He has. When it feels like the whole world is against you and you're suffering, much like the people in this letter were, you stand up and you stand firm in the knowledge that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And even if you lose everything in this world, and even if your life is taken from you, Jesus is worth it. And he has a far more beautiful inheritance for you after this life than you ever had in this world. And those things that you look at now are so precious, they're going to be worth nothing compared to what you have with him in heaven. And last of all, we stand up and we speak the gospel to people who are bound by Satan. It is the power of salvation for them. So we stand up. You know what I love? James says, when you resist him, he will flee. You love that word, flee? Messing with God's children is not a safe place to be for Satan. Flee means to, flee means to run away from danger. You're not dangerous. The one who loves you is dangerous. The one who loves you is dangerous. Next, we need to wise up. Wise up. So this is talking about knowing. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Knowing here is, is perfect tense. It usually is. And it speaks of knowledge that affects you. And what is this knowledge that's supposed to affect us? It's not just you. <laughs> It's not just you who faces attacks from Satan. All Christians face temptation to doubt God and his word. All Christians feel the weight of Satan's accusations about their sin. All Christians feel the, the sickening draw of sin. All of us do. Any Christian who stands up for Christ will face persecution. All of us. We're in it together. We're in it together. You young Christians, go and ask some of the older saints in this church that have served the Lord for 50, 60 years. Do you have these problems? And they'll, they'll, yeah. And Christ is everything. Christ is everything. We're in this together. This is a comfort to us because the devil wants you to think you're alone. You're not. But it's also an opportunity to think about our family in Christ. Think about our family in Christ when they are in the heat of satanic attack. So we pray for each other. We take the time to comfort one another. We stand up for our brothers and sisters when need be. We need to remember that we're part of a family. The last point here is beautiful. Look up. Look up. Look at verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered... A little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself personally restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When, when you look up, you will see a mighty, sovereign God. Do you think that Satan could go near you if God wasn't allowing it for good? Do you think that Satan could buff you, buffet you a second longer than God ordained for him to do? He could not. Do you think that God allows Satan to do anything in your life that will not ultimately work out for your good and for God's glory? He will not. You have a mighty, sovereign God looking over you, watching over you. And this is one of the stunning 
truths of scripture that I've been excited about recently. For all Satan's power and cunning and hatred and undiluted evil, he can do nothing that he is not allowed to do. And even in what he does, God is at work in it to bring good for you and glory for himself. This is amazing. Think of Peter, sifted by Satan, personally, sifted by Satan, shaken. What happened to Peter? It was the greatest learning moment of his life. It was a watershed. It was the, the thing that clothed him with humility and drove him to Christ for the rest of his ministry. I'm guessing that wasn't Satan's will. Paul's point in delivering people over to Satan, three, uh, two passages talk about it. And it, it was so that their flesh may be destroyed and their soul saved, and then that they may be taught not to, not to blaspheme. Flesh destroyed, soul saved, taught us not to blaspheme. I'm getting that, guessing that wasn't Satan's will either. <clears throat> the nasty, satanic attack on Paul, horrible that he calls his thorn in the flesh, a hateful person, again was a watershed, a watershed for him, much like Peter. What was the result? He was overcome by the beauty and efficacy of the grace of God. This was not Satan's will. Not Satan's will. When you face attack, you are still in the palm of God's hand. You're nowhere else. No one can snatch you from his hand. You're right there. And God is making it work for good. You might not feel it, but this is what God promises. God is making that work for good. And once Satan has served his purpose, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give in. You can stand firm in the knowledge that God is in control. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God's in control. One more short thing. <laughs> Tall guy saying short things. Just briefly, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you are here and you don't yet know him, in Ephesians 2, I'm just going to read it to you just to save time. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul says these things and he's talking to the Ephesian believers there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the followers of Satan, among whom we all once lived. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you've grown up in church, you know that Paul, before he believed, thought he was great. He was the most uh, legalistically righteous person you would meet. He was faultlessly religious. If he lived in New Zealand, he would have voted New Conservative. Sorry, I had to get that in somewhere. Imagine his shock when he realized that he was a follower of Satan. This is his confession here. He doesn't just say, you, you, you. He said, we all. I, too, was a follower of Satan, even when I thought I was good enough, even when I thought I hadn't done all the bad things, even when I was voting... For, for all the right people and listening to all the right blogs. I was a follower of Satan. And I want to tell you that he's content for you to sit here. Content for you to go to church. Content to think you're okay. Content for you to be religious. Content for you to vote for whoever you want. Because you can be all of those things and still be firmly in his grip. 
to belong to him. And you're in the grip of a liar and a murderer. He's not your friend. He's not your friend. And if you read on in that passage, you'll see that God offers you so much more. So much more. He offers you life and salvation and a future because he's rich in mercy. He's abounding in love. He desires to lavish his grace on you. Lavish his grace on you just like he has to the rest of us who don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. God loves you and the devil hates you. You've got a choice to make. Come to Jesus and he will not push you away. Let's pray together. Father, we're in awe that you care for us. It just blows our minds, Lord, that you who are so great would love us, would think of us. And we know that that's only because of what you did in Jesus that you could ever accept us. Father, please help anyone here who doesn't know you to turn to you to give up, to realize that apathy is opposition. And to come to Jesus who does love, who does care, so that they may be fully forgiven and accepted. Father, for all of us, wake us up. Please wake us up, dear God. Please defog our minds that we may see the battle that we're in, that we may see Satan behind all of the things in this world that are irking us, and to know where our strength lies. Lord, help us to stand up that we may be your people shining forth your light in this world. Strengthen your church as we currently face persecution. Strengthen your people in the many places where they've been killed for knowing you and loving you. Dear God, help us to have a reality check that we may walk in all your will and serve you in the full confidence that no one is greater than you in the strength that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.